So we are going to wrap up this uh, walk through the uh, letter to the Ephesians today. And then next week, we'll start our Advent uh, season here at our worship gatherings. And so um, I know for a lot of people, once you get past Thanksgiving, it's like it's Christmas time. A lot of people, once you get past October or Halloween, it's Christmas time. Uh, some people, yeah, settle down. Um, <clears throat> but we're gonna start next week with our Advent season. So hold your horses. We need to finish Ephesians. This has been a great journey going through this letter. We remember that Paul wrote this, not just to one specific church, uh, to address specific issues, but he wrote it as a general letter to a, a variety, a, a wide um, range of churches as kind of this um, really strategic approach to who, who we are and who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. And so as we wrap this up with the last chapter today, it'll be really helpful if we can make connections to the previous chapters that have come before. So if you've been following along, then uh, you should be able to make those connections. If not, I will uh, help make those for you today. Um, uh, the title today is Prepare for Battle, and uh, I, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, you're like, well, didn't you pick it? Well, sort of. I mean, Paul kind of did, but I, I just don't, I'm, I'm probably what you would call more of like a pacifist. Like I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a fight, like fighter. I don't want to go to battle. That's not something that's appealing to me. I've spent a lot of my life avoiding battles. <laughs> that's really kind of my, I mean, I like a lot of People in my generation, I got bullied in middle school and my, my response wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna go get that guy. It was like, come on, man. Like, again, really? I mean, we did this last week. The closest I ever came to really getting in a fight was um, when someone besmirched the honor of my sister and uh, I was ready to go. I was absolutely ready to go, but I also had friends who knew that I was not gonna be much good in a fight and so they went with me and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, strength in numbers, it never came to blows, but I just know I would not have done well. That, would not, that was not my thing. So um, when I think about the idea of preparing for battle, and Paul is going to tell me and tell us in this passage to prepare for battle, I'm like, no thanks. I'd really rather not. Can I be like a conscientious objector to spiritual warfare? Um, <clears throat> and the answer is no. So... Um, and and we'll, it'll be clear why that's the answer and, and how we can engage in a way that uh, is really um, God-honoring and, and values people. So let's dive into chapter six, uh, starting in verse 10. If you see something on the screen that's underlined, that's your part, please read that aloud. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so let's uh, break this down a little bit because I think there's some concepts in here that might be unfamiliar. There's some uh, things that we just don't talk about a lot that we need to make sure we're, we're on the same page with Paul about. He starts by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I gotta tell you, this is good news for me. If I'm going to battle, I don't want it to be on my strength and my skill because I don't have any. Like, I, that's not, I'm not built for that kind of battle. <laughs> but it's not my strength. It's not my power. Paul doesn't say like, all right, you need to, you need to 
you know, get powered up, you know, get, do your like pump iron, lift weights, whatever you do. I, it, that's, it's, that's not what's happening here. It's me being strong in God's power. That's good news to me. I like that he starts this way. Then he says to put on the armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Now that word schemes uh, should be a clue. First of all, we have an enemy. We'll get to that in a minute. But our enemy has schemes. He's not passive. He's not just opportunistic, but he has strategies and plans for destroying the people of God. That's what the enemy wants to do destroy the people of God. Because as we have read, we've, we've gone through this and this letter already. God chose us and saved us to create one new humanity, people united in his family, because he wants to live among his people. But if the enemy can destroy this family of God, then God's plan for dwelling among his people is ruined. And that's his goal. And he is strategic and methodological in this attack. And he says, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. And I think this is helpful to remember because a lot of times when we think about evil in the world or wickedness in the world, we put faces and names to it, don't we? Well, Paul would say, those people are not your enemy. Those people can be tools of the enemy to attack the people of God, but those people are not your enemy. And if you're going to battle against flesh and blood, you're on the wrong battlefield because that's not where our battlefield is. But he says, it's against the rulers, against authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Okay, so you read that and you're like, whoa, this is kind of weird. It's sort of mysterious and sounds kind of out there. And they're talking about spiritual things and Maybe you just weren't raised or you haven't been trained to think and see the world this way. But when he, he kind of outlines rulers, authorities, powers, he's, the really word is cosmic powers. And what he's saying is like, it's not just one enemy. So we've got the enemy, the devil, that he, he calls him the devil, or we might call him Satan. But he says, there's this whole organization, this whole system of evil powers that are out to destroy the church. So we have to take this pretty seriously. This is not just a lone ranger out there trying to destroy the church, but it is a whole organized system of evil characters who are bent on destroying God's people. And so we have to be prepared. We have to be prepared. Um, and the way that he says we're gonna prepare is we're gonna put on the armor of God. Um, armor is specifically designed to anticipate how the enemy would like to wound you and then to cover that part up, right? So that's why the places that get the best protection are your head, because if your enemy can whack you in the head, you're going down, and your heart, if the enemy can wound you in your heart, that's probably a fatal wound. And so we, we cover the things that the enemy's going to attack. And so Paul says there has to be some strategy to our defense. We've got to anticipate the attacks of the enemy, so that we can defend against those attacks. Now, we see this in other places in life where we, we kind of learn this uh, concept. Any chess players in the room? Uh, chess, no? Okay, we got a couple back there. And some of you are like, I am a nerd, but I don't want to admit it publicly. Just be proud. Um, chess is a game of attack and defense, right? It's a game of attack and defense, attack and defend, attack and defend. And the better you are at anticipating your enemy's attack, the, the more chance you have to win. In fact, you're, you're going to lose when you fail to anticipate the enemy's attack. 
or let's say opponent. If you're playing chess, they don't, they're not your enemy. They're probably your friend. They're just an opponent. Okay, clarify terms. It's important. Use the right words for things. So, uh, but, so you're not a chess people. Maybe you're sports ball people. Any sports ball people? Like football, baseball, basketball. Okay, we got more of those. Every sport has like a ready position, a ready position, a position where you get your body in a posture that's prepared for action, right? If you're playing, you know, shortstop in baseball, your ready position is, is down like this. If, if you're batting, there's a ready position. If you're playing football before the snap, there's a ready position. Um, I'm sure in, in other sports, I don't know anything about volleyball and swimming, and I'm sure there's ready positions because that concept is sort of built into the idea of competition, that if you're doing something physical, you, you have to get your body in a position to be prepared for action action. And Paul says, this is true spiritually as well. You're in a spiritual competition, a spiritual battle, and you've got to get yourself in a position where you're ready to go to battle. So how do we do that? Well, step one, the way we prepare, step one, and I'm, not, I'm only going to have this one step because <laughs> we got to get this one down. And I think it's enough to talk about. Um, and we have to acknowledge the existence and the danger of the enemy. We have to acknowledge the existence and the danger of the enemy. There's a, a quote that sort of been, um, you know, morphed over the years and floating around, but it, it finds its, I think, truest form in the movie The Usual Suspects when Verbal Kent says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You heard that? It's, it really started with this French writer named Charles Baudelaire, but um, we Americanized it. But I think it's, you can see that, right? You can see that if if the devil can convince us that he's not real by sort of creating these caricatures of this character with, a, you know, in a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork, and you're like, that's a cartoon character. I'm not really scared of that guy. Well, now he's already got an advantage over us because he's convincing us that he's not real or that he's not dangerous. And so our step one in preparing for battle is to acknowledge we have an enemy, and he has a whole system and whole organization of evil characters that are out to get the church, the people of God. Now that this feels serious, we're ready for what Paul has to say next. Now that we're convinced that there's something out there that wants to hurt us, and we, we're ready to prepare ourselves for battle. So here's uh, where Paul goes with this next. Verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to... Stepped on your line. And after that, you have done everything to stand. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. which is the word of God. All right, our, our key word from this passage is stand. Paul says, you just gotta stand because when you're faced with a battle, there are other options, right? Run and hide, that's an option. <laughs> and sometimes that's like the way we wanna go. But Paul says, you have to stand. Stand on what? Well, Paul would say, why don't you go back and read chapters one through five of this letter <laughs> and that'll tell you what we're standing on. And he is drawing on this ancient Hebrew idea of being rooted in something so strong that you can't be moved. That's why we read at the beginning from Psalm 1. Let me read those first three verses again. 
This is the psalm that introduces all the psalms, okay? This is like the introduction to all the psalms, the songs about and to God. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. So there's this ancient principle of standing firm, like a tree that's planted in the ground. It can't be moved. The wind can bend it, but it's not going anywhere. And that's what Paul is calling us to, that you've got to stand rooted in all these things that he talked about in the first five chapters so that when the attack comes, you're not moved. All right, so let's back up and let's talk about these things that that Paul has set out from the beginning of this letter. So let's um, look at these sort of laid out here in some circles. So chapter one is at the center here. We uh, had the concept that we have been chosen. God has chosen to invite humanity into his family. Like that's God's choice. God looked at humanity and he saw who we really are, which can be, good sometimes and also pretty bad sometimes. And he says, I want you in my family. He chose us. And then recognizing that there's a major obstacle to us being in the family of God, that is our own sinfulness. And he says, I'll deal with that. And he did through Christ. And so we are saved by grace through Christ. This is chapter two. We're saved by grace through faith so that we can answer this invitation to be a part of God's family. And for those who answer it then, he brings them all together. And for Paul, it was Jews and Gentiles, the two groups of people that should never have been socially connected. He brings them together. For us, it's people of all races and languages and income levels and opinions and nationalities all together into his family. They're united for one particular purpose. God says, I wanna live among my people. So we're gonna unite them so I can move in among them. And then uh, that's chapter three. And then we get this key verse of chapter four, verse one, which we saw on the screen at the beginning. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then he begins to talk about how we express that. How do we live out this life that he has saved us for? And the answers are in the church. We do it in the church by everybody bringing their gifts, contributing, offering what they have to offer and receiving what they need. And then we do it in our homes. And he asks the question, who is gonna take responsibility in the home for demonstrating the humility and submission of Christ? And the answer is everyone. Husband, wife, father, mother, parent, child. Everyone is gonna take responsibility. So this is what we're standing on. Paul says, Stand in this, the truth that you were chosen, saved, united by God, and given a church family and a home for you to express the faith that God has called you to. That's what we're standing on. But we're gonna need the armor of God to protect us as we stand. And so let's see how that works. So God gives us um, these things, truth. It's gonna be truth, righteousness, faith, the gospel of peace, salvation, the sword of the spirit. This is our armor to protect all of these uh, things that God has done and called us to do against the attacks of the enemy. And so what the enemy is going to do then is look for holes in that armor, look for weaknesses in that armor in both the church and the home. And when the enemy finds a weakness in the armor, 
at the, in the church or at the home, he attacks strategically. Remember schemes, methods. He's coming after your family. He's coming after your church. How does he do that? Well, I just want to look at three weapons that the enemy uses. This is not all the weapons, I think, but these are three that I think are particularly relevant and timely for us today. The first is division. The enemy attacks your home and your church through division. Anytime the enemy can create an us versus them mentality, he wins. When there's an us versus them in the church, the enemy wins. So we have to guard against that. This can happen along generational lines where there's the, the older versus the younger because there's, you know, the older feel neglected or alienated by change and the younger feel devalued and unimportant. And, and, and it creates this divide in us versus them. It can be an us versus them along sort of uh, philosophical missional lines. Are, are we, is the purpose of the church to care for and protect the people who are in the church or is the purpose of the church to go out and reach the people who are not in the church? And there can be division along those lines. It can be uh, divisions on uh, leadership styles. So do, we, should, do we want a traditional leadership style or do we want an egalitarian leadership style? And we can be divided on those lines. And there are so many ways that the enemy can create an us versus them mentality. Well, well my camp thinks this way and those people think that that way. No, we are the body of Christ and we belong to each other and we can have different opinions, but we better not be separated by them because if we do, the enemy gets in and destroys. And what I mean by destroying the church is not that a bomb goes off in this building and it ceases to exist. What I mean is that we lose power to impact our communities with the gospel of Jesus because of division in the church. So if we look around and we go, man, I don't know where the power is. Where's the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives and, and to reach out and draw people to Jesus? Where's the power? We may have to look at some of these weapons and see if the enemy has found a weakness in our armor and attacked us. The second weapon that I think is timely and critical for us is just false teaching, a, a, a false gospel. A gospel that does not include an invitation for all people, to all people to engage as equals in the body of Christ is a false gospel. A gospel that requires human works to attain a right standing with God is a false gospel. And the enemy will see these false ideas creeping into the church and see an opportunity and will scheme and strategize and attack through false teaching. This is where we, we lean on the truth. Remember the belt of truth? We lean on the truth that none of us deserve salvation, but it has been freely offered. And for those who accept it, you're united into one body, not two or three or a thousand, but one. And the truth of the gospel is very clear. Paul lays it out over and over again in all of his writings. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and making a way for all people to experience eternal life forever. That's it. And whenever anything else takes precedence in the church, the enemy sees an opportunity and attacks. The third weapon that I think is uh, timely and dangerous for us is um, individualism individualism. This is sort of a me-centered approach to my faith. 
Um, now, we, we recognize right away that that's not how we roll here at Cicero Christian Church because we, we are moving in the direction of what? Oh, wow, yeah. I've, I've said this about a thousand times. So we're gonna get this, right? It's Jesus-centered living, okay? We are moving in the direction of Jesus-centered living. Jesus-centered, not me-centered, not Adam-centered, not Amber-centered, not even Jason-centered. Jason's pretty great, but we're not Jason-centered. We are me, we are Jesus-centered. See, I said it wrong. We are Jesus-centered people. And when Jesus is at the center, individualism has no place. When, when I take an individualistic or a me-centered approach to my, let's just say you do this in your home. If this happens in your home, how does that go over? Do you have healthy relationships when you have a me-centered posture in your home? Nope. You know exactly what that looks like. You may have seen it this morning already. But it's destructive. But when we have a Jesus-centered approach as a family, we find peace and joy and purpose around every corner. When I take a me-centered approach to my faith, to my worship experience, then it becomes about, well, do I like the music? And is the volume okay for me? And did I really like that sermon? Or do I... You know, like, would I rather hear somebody else preach or where, like, it's not about any of those things if, if, if it's a Jesus-centered approach. But if those are the things that are on our mind when we walk into the gathering, we have a me-centered approach, this individualism that runs rampant in our world. When it comes into the church, the enemy goes, I got them. I got them right where I want them. And we lose power. So how do we defend we have the armor of God surrounding these truths that we are united and that we are one family and that each member belongs to all the others. When you're a part of a family, you can't isolate yourself and prioritize your needs and your wants, but you serve and you care about the needs of others. That's our defense against this attack. The enemy is gonna poke and prod at our defenses looking for an opening until he finds one. Trying to cut our faith out from under us, cut our sense of being chosen, our sense of being saved by grace out from under us. Trying to create disunity in the church or a center in your home that is something other than Jesus. When all those things happen, the enemy wins. But when we defend against the enemy, there is power here. Not our power. Our power is not good for anything. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There is power here to change lives, to change your life, to change the lives of the people in your home to change the lives of people in our community who don't know Christ or have actively rejected him and his church. There's power when we get this right. That's what's at stake. And so I think that the temptation when we hear all this is to let fear creep in and say, okay, whoa, now we've got, so there's Satan, that sounds bad. And then he's got this whole organization of evil characters, even worse. What am I supposed to do against all of that? And we can become afraid. And if fear is where we land, at this point in Paul's letter, he's pretty disappointed in us. He's like, just remember what we're talking about here. Whose power is it? Whose strength is it? 
It was never yours. God actually loves you. He's not just interested in what he can get out of you. He cares about you. He will protect you if you stand. So he's gonna give us a way to engage uh, in, in this battle. Uh, we, it's not just about preparing and defending, but we, actually, we have an active part to do. And our active part, he's gonna lay out in these um, last three verses here, verses 18 through 20. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What do you think the key word is from that section? Pray, pray. Pray. He says it over and over again. This is how we fight the spiritual battle. It's, it's, it's not through some kind of propaganda campaign or we've got to discredit the people who are against us and cut their legs out from under them. This is, this is prayer. This is our spiritual battle. He says this when he writes to the Corinthians also in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul is saying our, our battle is a battle of prayer, and it has actual power, actual power. And you think, well, I've prayed, but I don't know if I've sensed the power that you're talking about. I think it's time to open our minds up to what God is really capable of. If the enemy is real, if there really is an enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you wanna call him, and he's bent on destroying the people of God and he's got this whole system, don't you think God has a plan for not losing that battle? In fact, God's already won. The war was over when Jesus rose from the dead. But until he returns, we have to keep fighting this battle and we do it through prayer. This is what Summer talked about earlier when she led us, about the importance of just praying with and for each other. There is actual power there. And, and here's the good news for those of you who haven't seen it and are not sure that you believe it. It's real whether you believe it or not. Even when you pray and you don't feel the power, it's still there. God's presence is powerful. And he is present when his people pray. Even if you don't know the words, if you're like, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know the right prayers to pray. I, I, don't, I don't know how to talk like those people on stage at church. I don't, that's not my thing. It's okay. His presence is powerful. And he's present when his people pray. So this is how we fight our battle. We are praying for God's power to be unleashed through the church. That's us. That's the prayer. God, unleash your power through us. Paul asked for boldness to proclaim the gospel from jail. <laughs> Why is he in jail? For proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> and you're like, well, shouldn't Paul be asking to be released from prison? He didn't. 
He didn't ask for an escape from his pain and suffering. He asked for boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Because sometimes it's in our pain and suffering that the message of the gospel carries the most weight to the people around us. I know there are people in this room that are hurting. And you feel like now's not the time. Now's not the time for me to engage in spiritual warfare. I'm, I'm barely keeping my head above water. But you need to know that when you pray, God is present and his presence is powerful. When you feel weak, he is strong. When Paul's in prison, the gospel's still true, right? This is how we fight, is we pray. So let's do that, shall we? Um, I'm just gonna invite you to pray along with me. We're gonna put the slide back up with the circles. That one, here's what I'd like for you to think through. In, in which of those areas can you, can you sense maybe the enemy is attacking either your home or your church in, in one of those areas? Is, is it in the truth that, that, that you are chosen? God actually has invited you because he loves you into his family. Is it in this concept of salvation that God has actually done all the work for you so that you are saved by grace through faith? It's done. Is the enemy attacking you there? Is the enemy attacking unity, either in your home or in the church? Are there places where there's an us versus them mentality that's crept in? Is the enemy attacking you in some way? Or do you sense it in your home or in the church? And we're just gonna pray that God's powerful presence would be demonstrated through his people in a way that makes the enemy run and hide. Would you pray that prayer with me? I'm gonna give you some time, just 60 or 90 seconds on your own to pray, and then I'll... Uh, close us out. Father, as we wrestle with this serious and sometimes difficult concept of spiritual battle, I pray that you would eliminate fear from this room, that you would pull back the curtain for us on your glory and your strength, the power that you leveraged to conquer sin and death once and for all through your son, Jesus, that we would see that that power is available to us. We don't need to be afraid. And may we desire more, may we hunger to see your power unleashed in our churches and in our homes so that the power of the gospel is unleashed to change lives in our community. 
to set captives free, to bring healing to the broken and new life to the spiritually dead. May we see all of that happen right in front of us. And may you get the glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.